You're listening to He Kōrero, a community research podcast. Welcome to our second podcast series, Hoki Whakamuri Haere Whakamua, Thinking Back, Going Forward, our webinars and audio. Hear brave kōrero on kaupapa, like valuing worldviews and indigenous research, the power of refugee research, supporting New Zealand-born Pacific youth and white fragility. This webinar, co-designed for well-being, was hosted in February 2020. It brought together Angie Tangaere and Dr Penny Hagen. This webinar shares mahi on empowering whānau to be active participants in their well-being. How can the co-design process to develop systems and services to support tamariki to have the best start in life be created and delivered? And why should we break away from traditional expert-led approaches to instead bring together mātauranga, Western science and lived experience of whānau to design spaces. We are aware that there's a lot of poor examples of co-design and there are also some fantastic um, examples and I do firmly believe that Aotearoa are actually global leaders in this space. And um, for those of you that are really here to learn, um, today is really an opportunity to pick up some really hot tips that we hope that you'll be able to just apply to your mahi or at least open your thinking, especially your organisation and how you might go about approaching uh, engagements or interactions with communities um, and whānau. It is a bit of a buzzword um, and many government agencies um, and lots of organisations are kind of throwing this co-design concept around um, but it also has its the co-design roots in the D School of Stanford, which I'm certain um, the lady's going to speak about today, um, and specifically a focus on user-centred product design. Um, and of course, co-design has shown itself in technology um, in many different projects. Uh, and also, as we'll find out today, many Māori are very familiar with this concept of co-design as well. So we've just got to be mindful about some of the jargon that might seem confusing, but actually it's quite commonsensical. And I spoke earlier about examples of really poor co-design. Um, some of the best and most authentic examples of co-design can be found in South Auckland and other parts of Aotearoa, um, especially in the work uh, of the Southern Initiative with the Auckland Co-Design Lab, who is striving to create opportunities, address inequity, enable final transformation and shift power through co-design. In this webinar, our two um, whānau here, Angie Tangaere from the Southern Initiative and Dr Penny Hagen from the Auckland Co-Design Lab, provide some wonderful examples of effective co-design. Your approach brings together mātauranga Māori, Western science and lived experience of whānau to support systems change in spaces, services and support that enable tamariki to thrive. At the heart of their work is empowering whānau through an intentional tikanga and neuroscience approach and process. This means that whānau lead the co-design process. They develop the insights and prototypes in response to the real-life issues that they identify as important. The approach disrupts traditional service-led responses to social challenges and results in new capability, capacity and alternative whānau-led models driven by the outcomes that matter most to them. Angie Tungaire and Penny will share their key insights and also their key challenges um, and, I guess, yeah, lived experiences from applying this particular approach over a long period of time. 
Angie from the Southern Initiative was born in Papakura, Kilda, and raised in South Auckland with a whakapapa tangati pro on her father's side and also uh, her Pākehā roots from Taranaki from her mother's side. She graduated with a law degree from the University of Auckland but decided not to become a lawyer. That sounds wise. <laughs> but using that amazing intellect, Angie was able to work at a community level and took up a role at Tipuni Kōkere working with iwi and Māori Trusts in South Auckland. She then worked with the Ministry of Social Development in South Auckland, um, working with communities to develop better services and engagement, especially with whānau. We've got a bit of a theme going on here, which is awesome. She moved on to a role with Māori Health, um, in particular the NGO, the National Hauora Coalition, before working with TSI, the Southern Initiative. She combines her experience with government agencies, community and whānau to develop whānau-led programs, disrupting ineffective business-as-usual systems. Now I'll shift across to you, the amazing Penny Hagen. She's the co-design lead with the Auckland Co-Design Lab. Over the last 15 years, Penny has designed and led a range of participatory and social innovation initiatives in Australia and New Zealand, working across community, commercial and academic sectors with a focus on well-being. Penny specialises in projects with social outcomes and provides training and mentoring to design teams uh, and organisations wanting to increase their impact through the adoption of more participatory design and research approaches. Her practice is increasingly focused on understanding points of integration between health, design, youth development, evaluation, the built environment and policy in order to increase social outcomes. Penny has a PhD in participatory design and is a presenter and reviewer of academic and industry forums. I think that all of that says to me, you're awesome <laughs> and that you put people first and uh, co-design is an approach to actually really put no people, humans at the centre of the mahi. So awesome, awesome um, bios, ladies, but I think it's an awesome opportunity um, for us to hand the rako over to you both to share a bit about you, your story, um, and some of those insights that you've got to share with us. Tēnā kōrua. Oh, kia ora tātou. Um, Tuatahi he mihi ki a kuea. Um, Kei mori mō tō karakia. Tō mihi mihi tō manaki tanga ki a, ki a tātou tēnei ata nō reira ngā mihi. Ngā mihi mahana ki a koutou. Um, Ngā hapu, ngā iwi uh, o te motu, ko Angie Tangaria hau no te tai rāwhiti, uh, no reira tēnā kato katoa. Kia ora whānau, my name's Angie. Um, that was a long bio, so you know a lot about me. I don't really need to see, say much here, but um, I'm born and bred South Auckland, Ngāti Pudau, mama of two boys, and I'm really excited to share uh, what we're learning in this space. And um, our focus has been on um, supporting tamariki wellbeing, and helping um, to understand how we best support whānau to give tamariki the best start in life. So I'm a social entrepreneur um, at the Southern Initiative and we'll talk about um, mahi shortly, but I'll hand it over to Dr Penny Hagen, Director of the Auckland Co-Design Lab, to talk about herself. Thanks, Kamari, for that um, opening and for creating the space for us to connect with other people who have an interest in um, the mahi, but in, in the um, bigger kaupapa of um, 
seeing things shift um, and working with Fano to ensure that what's important to them are the things that we're focused on in our policy and service system. Um, I'm based at the Auckland Co-Design Lab. My background is in participatory design, which is helping organizations and communities put the people who are impacted by decisions and strategies uh, in the, in the decision-making process um, and helping organizations to think about how they go about doing that. Um, the co-design lab itself is when nested inside the Southern Initiative, um, which, which is a real privilege actually to be working alongside people like Angie and other team members um, here in South Auckland. Um, we're funded by uh, nine government, central government agencies and our role is to try and help build the capability of the public sector really to work differently together and to try and help make um, better connections between the well-being ambitions that we have, the policy intent and what actually happens on the ground and some kind of learning connections between all that. So that's the focus of our mahi. So fine, I'm just going to talk a little bit about the context of our mahi and then we'll give you some practical examples of how, what we're learning. But the Southern Initiative is the Social Innovation Unit of Auckland Council. So it's our job to think about how we do things differently for different results for our whānau. So what we know at a population level for our whānau here in South Auckland is that despite a whole heap of resource, lots of initiatives, lots of programmes, the status quo is not serving some of our whānau, in fact it's making things worse. So our job is to think about, well, what are the compelling alternatives, what do we need to grow to respond to whānau and support whānau in a different way. So basically it's our job to think about how do we need to work and do things differently for our whānau to have better outcomes in the area and one of those has been to think about, well, what's the kind of social innovation methodology that needs to sit at the heart of doing things differently and you'll hear us talk about some key principles around that not just putting whānau at the centre of what we do but supporting whānau to lead and fundamentally rethinking where innovation capability and capacity resides when we're thinking about what we what we need to grow and the alternatives. So what we've been thinking about is if we need to do things differently then how might we work in a different way to do that with our whānau. And so what we've been thinking about is how we triangulate Matauranga Māori design methodology and the neuroscience in our case, because we're focused on better outcomes for our tamariki first thousand days, as well as building the capability of, of adults to accelerate outcomes for our tamariki. I just want to stress that we're just sharing what we're learning in terms of triangulating the systems of knowledge. And the whole point of doing this and our innovation methodology, if you'd call that, we sometimes call it whānau-centred design, is this triangulation of, of knowledge allows us to learn in the process. So we're not saying this is it. We just want to share with you what we've learned about the way that we have combined these three things and what that's meaning for our work. So if I could just talk to the three components, I'll start with the design methodology. I saw an opportunity with that methodology to put our whānau at the centre of everything that we're doing. Not just their voice, but being strength-based, building capability, the whānau sharing their knowledge with us, us sharing some knowledge, um, putting them at, them at the centre of what we're doing. Not a system, not a programme, not an intervention. Um, that was the first thing, because that, that makes sense to, to me in terms of a Māori worldview as well. People at the centre, Manaki tangata. Um, the second thing was there is a bias to action. So the, the time for talk is long gone for our whānau here in, in South Auckland. We need to be doing 
staff together now. Um, we can't afford to wait for the, the next best policy or the next best intervention. We want to be doing stuff with our community, with our whānau right now, figuring out what's possible. And so there's a bias to action in the staff, you're testing stuff, learning with whānau, and so that made sense to me. And the other thing is this thing helps us to learn through rapid um, cycles of learning and iterations and figure out quickly what's not going to work so that we can figure out what is going to work. So the stuff around fast fail and understanding, um, quickly understanding what the potential is. The tikanga approach made sense to me because the methodology seems sound, but it needs to be contextualised and needs to be appropriate for our communities. Our whānau need to see themselves reflected in anything we do, any work, any process, any space. So we started to think about what needs to sit with the methodology in terms of practice. And for me, that was our uh, Materanga Māori. So we've created a tikanga framework that's derived primarily from Māori, a kaupapa Māori research methodology. And we use that framework as the lens for how we are supporting um, our whānau inside of the process and the conditions that need to be present so that whānau feel welcomed, safe, reflected, empowered inside of the process. So we use whanaungatanga, uh, rangatiratanga, mana, ako. We're reviewing that. We're not saying those are the only tikanga that you would use on, in that. There was a comment on Facebook around wairua. We think that's critical too. And also we're thinking about Modi in the space. But that framework, it's the guidance for the way that we are working with whānau. And we can give you some practical examples of that. It would sit at the heart of any practice for me, whether it was design, whether it was collective impact, whether it was anything else. This is the thing that kind of sits at the heart. And the third thing that we've been thinking about is the neuroscience that's coming out of the centre of the developing child in Harvard around the criticality of the first thousand days of our babies' lives, building the brain architecture that needs to be built in, in the first thousand days and what that means for lifelong outcomes. But one of the more critical things for me in terms of that science is it talks about how you build the capability of the whānau, the adults in their life, so they can nurture their children. So that's around reducing stress, helping um, increase bandwidth, cognitive bandwidth for whānau, and thinking about executive function when you're, in, you're engaging with adults. All that means is that when you are living in the type of complexity that many of our whānau live uh, in here in South Auckland and across the Mutu, then we've got to fundamentally rethink the way we are responding and, and supporting them inside of these processes. Because a lot of the things we're doing now is compounding the stress that they're experiencing. We just really want to share with everybody where we're at and what we're learning. Um, and we're really interested understand how what we're seeing connects to what others are doing and really recognise that there's lots of mahi in this space. So this is our offer just to share where we're up to, not the answers. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've really enjoyed about the development of um, TSI over the years and also the design process is it's been a good decade now um, of embedding systems and processes and I think the, the transformative impact of the approach is that uh, as you said before, Angie, this isn't just about a program, a, prog a programmatic approach 
um, or a policy approach. It's a fully integrated approach, which is about you have to bring all the partners around the table from government, from um, the whanau, from those that will be engaging and connecting with whanau on a regular basis. So the actual approach is very holistic. Um, and I know that gets bandied around a lot. But the fact that TSI have been very brave and courageous and breaking ground has actually meant, and I'm certain you'll cover it, has actually meant that you've been able to drive some quite significant social change and behaviour change as a result of this approach, which I'm certain you'll cover. The issues that you're raising in the introduction, Kay-Marie, around the use of the term co-design and its problematic implementation in a, um, in a way that is probably the opposite of some of the intent. And that's very real, I guess, for us to engage with that and be really critical about what we mean by it. Where we're coming from really is the practice that we're trying to identify, develop, and in some ways promote, I guess, is very much values-led and relationally driven, um, as opposed to methods first. So whatever serves the purpose is, is kind of what we're interested in. Um, so to some extent, the conversation about language is really important, and other times we get really tangled up in terms, and really we're interested in what does it mean to start with values, to start with the outcomes that matter with whānau and then with whānau and putting around whatever we need to try and make that happen. Um, but a way to, I guess, simply describe some of the key things for us around co-design, and this is my language, it's probably not how Angie would explain it necessarily, but a way of just highlighting some of the shifts for us. It's not so much co-design as a way to design a service or a thing, it's much more about approaches to well-being that are locally responsive, they're strengths-based, they're community-led, and they think about systems conditions. So we're interested in how co-design serves that purpose, not a new program, a new program designed better, because otherwise we end up just reinforcing the broader structural issues, the ongoing impacts of colonization, the structural racism that sits inside the system. We're not addressing any of that by just tweaking program by program. And I'm not saying that there's not improvements to be made programmatically, but we're, we're trying to see it really as a bigger way of having a community level response that's backed up by a policy response. That's a big ask, we're not there yet. <laughs> That's the framing. And then secondly, not so much co-design for a new idea. So not so much let's crack out this um, silver bullet, this one thing that's gonna solve all these complex problems. We particularly as government are always reaching for that simple answer. That's, that's not what we're engaging in. We're up for a much deeper conversation than that around building capability, building capacity, reconfiguring how the system has set up resources and funding and assets. So we're gonna to work together and make a, a great new thing. Great new stuff comes out of it for sure, but it's more about what's enabled relationship building, the deconstruction of current funding structures or those kinds of things that come from working together differently. So I just wanted to provide, it's not perfect, but it just helps to position a little bit where we're coming from. There's a thing about this, whatever you call it, whether you call it an innovation methodology, you call it whānau-centred design or it's something else. The whole purpose of it for me and for, for the team is how do we empower our whānau and our communities to lead the design, implementation and learning of local fit-for-purpose solutions for them? Because a lot of the time we figure, we think only these, these massive institutions are going to be able to solve some of these mo the most complex issues we've got. And actually what we're learning is um, there's so much potential in terms of innovation capacity, capability, resourcefulness, resilience in our communities. All we've got to do is support that 
for them to create their own solutions. And so this is kind of what this is geared to do. So it's whatever it takes to do that for us. The shift of power now becomes how we're supporting whānau and community to do what they need to do, rather than how are we creating something that's going to um, meet a deficit target. Great segue to some stuff that we're doing. So you, you, you would have just heard Penny talking about, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, it's not about, it, well, it is about what, what can we do better in terms of services, but also what else can we do to, to respond and support Fano in a different way, in a fundamentally different way. And what we've been thinking about, uh, how do we realise the potential of, of spaces and existing resource inside of community to respond to Fano in a different way. Also, how do we develop Fano to Fano responses? And I know there are many examples of those already in Aotearoa, but we're trying to figure out what that looks like for us here in South Auckland. So if I just start with some work that we're doing with Plunkett, for example, in Manurua, which was initially premised on a refurb of a space, but we saw it as really an opportunity to think about systems readiness or systems change in locality. So what could we do with Plunkett right now in this physical space that would support a capability build inside of Plunkett in a different way of working with whānau? Not to say they're not doing great stuff with whānau already, but what else could we do to support whānau? And what that's led us to think about is how do you uh, create the conditions in, in, in terms of spaces to start to uh, share power and control with Fana in the space, but also to be able to respond to what the needs and aspirations are, particularly of the Fana in that space. And so what that means for us is we've been, and our Fana have told us in some corridor here in South Auckland that they're often parenting outside of their home. So they've got little babies or little fellas, and often they're outside of their home for lots of reasons. They might be lonely, it might be cold, someone might be asleep, might not be safe. And so we were like, well, here's this massive opportunity for us to create spaces where whānau feel like they're welcome, they can nurture their tamariki. And so we started to think about how we did that across a network of spaces, and particularly in Manurua. And we um, supported our whānau to lead that conversation. And so the first thing they were telling us was what they needed physically in the space to be there. So if I want to parent in a space, here's the things that I need. We call those the five minimums. A place to change the baby and clean the baby. Uh, a place to warm up food, kitchen facilities. A place to connect with others if they wanted to or not. Just be around people. Warm and welcoming staff. And a place to put baby down and have a little rest. They told us that those were the five things. We started to think about those as almost a criteria about how far no friendly are these spaces that we have. Because... What Plunkett was saying to us was, we keep inviting whānau down, but they don't come down. And other spaces were saying the same thing. And so we used this as a bit of a checklist. And for the Manurewa site, um, the, the Plunkett site only had one of the five. And they didn't have a change table in a Plunkett site. And there's lots of reasons why, that, why the, the site had developed like that in terms of the pressure that Plunkett's and uh, to deliver what they need to deliver and the way that it's delivered. Um, but it's a really interesting insight around us challenging whether you are actually whānau-centred in terms of your behaviour in your space. It, just delivering a service to whānau and to children does not make you tamariki or whānau-centred. 
and that's not a criticism. That is the, that those are the conditions the system are putting um, on our organisations to deliver certain things. And then the second thing was, not only did the space need to be physically fit for purpose, but the offering in the space needed to be specific and unique to what that community needed. So this is the, the idea of thinking about there are spaces where services and programs are delivered into or out of, to spaces where whānau uh, actually have shared power and control into the space to say what they need. An example of that was at Plunkett, they were delivering their um, tamariki wellbeing, their well-child services. They were also doing car seat clinics. They were doing specific whānau centre um, support for mums and babies around breastfeeding. And they were all great. And what whānau are telling us is they just often need a safe space to come down and connect without judgement to be supported. So it's figuring out how do you do the stuff we need to do, but also how do you open up the space for whānau to feel welcome. So there's something in the physical offerings of the space and what the minimum is there, but also about how we're sharing power and control in the spaces for whānau to be able to determine what the offering in the, in the space is. And often it's not service or program, it's things around connecting with people like myself, um, being able to have a, a conversation with someone who might understand um, the challenges of my whānau, but not necessarily needing, wanting it to be a, a, um, a professional or a service. Um, a place to be healed, not just physically, wairua. Those are the kinds of things whānau are telling us um, are important. So that, that's the kind of example. So the outcome of that was the site now is more physically fit for purpose. It's, it's bright and colourful. It's got all the stuff whānau said they needed in terms of the aesthetics of the place. But the most important thing is the team and the inside the Plunkett Centre have set their own kawa, which puts whānau at the centre of everything that they do. Now there's a kawa for the space, it's not about delivering the service, well it is about delivering the service well, but it's about putting values-led approach to the way that whānau are welcomed into the space firstly. Not seeing whānau come through the door and going, are you, are, are you here for well child or are you here for, it's about welcoming them into the space. and. That has been a really big learning for us about how you support the team and the culture. You can do stuff physically in the spaces and that needs to happen, whānau need to be involved, but what underpins that is the culture of that organisation, that team, mindsets, attitudes towards whānau. So that was that one. The second thing we're thinking about, I'll try and do this um, quickly, is we've been able to um, do some work in a couple of projects where whānau have led a peer-to-peer -peer or a whānau to whānau response. And one of those projects was uh, with the Kōtuitui Trust, who were doing some amazing work. And really that work was about whānau saying that the, the things that they were concerned about, they wanted to address as a whānau in their community was poor housing conditions and safety. And what we talked to the whānau about there is what did they think their greatest strengths were? And they talked about aroha ki te tangata, amanaki ki te tangata. I want to care for other people in my community. Um, sometimes that's, that, that feels hard to do because of the realities of, of our, our world now. And so we thought about how we help whānau create warmer, drier, healthy, healthier homes. And instead of putting rheumatic fever, poor housing conditions, skin infections at the centre of what we did, we put what the whānau were telling us was their greatest strength, iterated a prototype based on the strength, created a prototype called Kohuya Mano, which the outcome of that was for no first, 
connecting with other whānau, supporting other whānau, connecting each other in place. And also they thought about how they democratise some highly technical information around housing functionality. So they created a prototype where they came together, connected with each other as a whānau, created these new networks of relationships at a local level, and they also created a prototype where they would go in as whānau and help other whānau do some low-cost, no-cost um, things inside of their home, use the knowledge that they'd just shared with whānau over a cup of tea, alongside some pragmatic solutions using bubble wrap vinegar. Mm -hmm. The result is that that response was faster and more effective than the system's response. And when I talk about that, I mean, some of these whānau had registered for um, housing programs and they'd waited up to five months for someone to come and do the assessment for the program to uh, happen. This thing can happen in two weeks, can do the same thing and the potential that we understand it has is there can be a significant increase in the heat and the dryness inside of the home from this intervention front. So from a program perspective, if you wanted to call it, we know it's, it's good. And also what we observed in this process is that when you are building people's capability through a design process and they are engaging with other whānau, you start to see a whole heap of other social outcomes that are critical. Things like building people's social capital, they're involved in things in their community they may not have been before. Um, they become board of trustee members at the school, they were too shy to go inside the gates before that. Um, they become Māori wardens, they take up part-time work, which they might not have been confident to do. So when you start to build people's self-efficacy, their agency, their confidence through this type of process, where they're leading it and they're being told, you, you can do this stuff, you're incredibly talented, you, you know, all that, that kind of stuff. And then you are creating at the same time, hopefully positive pro-social connections that they might not have had in, um, in their community. They've been quite socially isolated. You're creating all of these other social outcomes in the way that you're working with people, as well as the prototype itself. But what we're interested in is a transfer of knowledge that allows our communities to be able to do this stuff for themselves. And so there was some talk around who does co-design and where that sits. And people think about that as a, often a, con, a consultancy or we're getting consultants to do that. What we're saying is what we know, we are sharing with our whānau and that's part of the capacity and capability build as we do it. And, that, and we're learning lots at the same time, but our interest is in whānau and communities being able to have the, the skill, the capability, the capacity to create their own solutions, I guess. We've been lucky enough, or Angie has, to be able to stay connected to this. So we're not just doing anything at the upfront. That's not the way this work is manifesting. So it's about seeing the change happen. We're still connected to that group and community in an ongoing way. So it's an ongoing building in of capability and revisiting and coming back, but also working alongside the providers and government teams that, are, that sort of hold the key to some of those resources and working with them to understand what does it mean to reconfigure their resources. And Angie's gonna talk about that in a minute because there's a lot more to it, right? Than just saying, oh, we should do it this way. Um, but I, just to reiterate, there's lots of services that do incredibly good work and we're not saying no, there shouldn't be services, but we, we are recognizing along with lots of others that often the way we've packaged up the resource through a service, it's actually doing more harm for people. It contrib we contribute through the delivery of some of our 
um, social services to the increase in stress for people. We make people work much, much harder than they need to. And for lots of people, that's not serving them. So what does it look like to move beyond services and see the capability that already exists in community and then reconfigure those important assets and knowledge in ways that's complementary and reciprocal rather than holding that expert-led model, which we have. And I know the government likes to talk about, all governments like to talk about evidence-based programming. And that, that's a red flag, right? Because whose evidence from what program, from what other country, and where was that and in what context was that delivered? Who says that that thing is going to come and serve our community. So we're trying to unpack and challenge some of those ideas about what good looks like and where it comes from and say there's so much more know-how and knowledge in the system. We've got all these resources already here, but the way we've got them packaged up at the moment is tightly around funded services and what you know responses on single things. And that doesn't seem to be serving us. So what does it mean to reconfigure some of that stuff? And Angie's going to talk now about how we can say that, it's really easy to say that, ah, but then what does it take for us as practitioners, service providers, government teams to really genuinely engage with that? There were also a couple of really good questions raised around how does um, co-design impact uh, or interact with collective impact? You know, you've got the, the jargon words kind of knocking it, knocking into each other. Can you just answer that question for us, please, Penny? <laughs> um, I mean, I think... They're, they're all talking about working more collaboratively. Yeah, yeah. Um, to some extent, I mean, it depends how you implement these things, yeah, right? Yeah. It depends what your version is. I think if collective impact's working for people, then do that and mash everything up if you like. One of the emphasis for collective impact, as I understand it, is that there tends to be a lot of work around measures, the alignment of measures, and a lot of work around building the collaboration structures before you get into a project. And I get that because there's a whole thing about building trust. But also where what we've found most useful is you have to start trying to change things, genuinely understand what it will take to change things. And so if we spend a lot of time trying to set up the structures for collaboration, you know, we're better off to get in and start actually testing where is there barriers and obstacles but I'm not I wouldn't put them against each other I think whatever works and there's lots yeah. of overlap and yeah it feels often it's agency led um, and people could be doing that in a different practicing in a different way now and that could be community and whanau led but it, it often feels like it's agencies coming together first and kind of figuring something out and we're trying to figure out how how you help this, this thing to be whanau led and community led and the rest of us fall in behind that and figure out what that means the change that we need to make for that to happen. Um, just one thing around the whānau to whānau and the reconfiguring, like we totally haven't worked this everything out. So one of the big challenges for me is if we are supporting whānau to whānau, then how are we resourcing the whānau? Because we can't be expecting our communities and our whānau to be doing this work for nothing because they often get quite passionate about the work, they want to lead it, but they need a decent income for their families. And so we're still figuring out what that model looks like, how you reconfigure resource for whānau to be able to, be, to do this work and work out the challenges around abatements, around income, the tax stuff and all of that stuff. Because we don't want to be putting people in a more difficult situation, but we don't want people to be doing this stuff for free. Because essentially they're picking up the stack on some stuff that's not working, that the system isn't able to um, respond to. So, Kilda. that's, yeah, so we're trying to figure that out. We don't know what that looks like, but. <laughs> yeah, we're not, exactly, exactly. 
I thought, um, it, because there was another question that was raised about Tiriti and co-governance, so perhaps for this segment, Angie, maybe you might want to bring a bit of a treaty lens on it, because I think it lends itself as well to that specific statement you've made around resourcing, and especially about power imbalance, because when organisations or agencies are sending people in to do this work, they are employed full-time um, and we're taking from community often their knowledge their experience their time the energy and so maybe bring a little bit of a treaty lens um, to your analysis too could be helpful in answering that question um when i think about rangatiratanga now i can sometimes get into trouble with some people around this term but i'm saying that is that's autonomy for our whanau where they're living right now so we recognize the role of mana whenua the status of mana whenua here um, and of the kaitiaki of the whenua and the people here and I also want to understand what does it mean to support rangatiratanga for whānau who are living outside of their iwi rohe. And when I say that, I simply mean their ability, their autonomy to actively decide and participate in their own destiny, whatever that is, their outcome. So that, that is something that we've been thinking about as well. We've also been in uh, discussions with iwi and with other um, kaupapa Māori organisations around what does it mean to reconfigure resource to this area where you've got a number of your own iwi living here and, and, and government departments are, are seeking to support um, Māori uh, outcomes. What does that mean for us at a regional level, I guess, or at a, at a locality level? So what are some of the challenges around doing this work? And particularly, we're thinking about um, how do we support the conditions and the capabilities for this type of work, innovation work and system? And what we know about this work is that when we're working with systems or large organisations or we're working with Fano on a particular project or piece of work and we're getting the key stakeholders around the table to support us in that work or the organisation is when we're asking people to do things differently, to rethink the way they share power and control with Fano, then that push for systems and people in systems to think outside of their expert-led model, their embedded practice, often conditions that are preventing innovation bubble to the surface. So what we've found was that you often surface embedded issues in the system or in the culture that organisation or the system has not been able to acknowledge and resolve for itself. And so when we're going in and talking to people about spaces and how you share power and control with spaces, actually, as we help people to understand how they might do that, things like institutional racism or racist attitudes and mindsets in, in terms of individuals bubble to the surface. And other things come to the surface that are sort of sitting inside that system and preventing them from responding in a different way or, or supporting whānau in a different way. And we did not expect that, but it seems to, to really um, rattle the cage for some of our more traditional systems and people inside of systems. And so what we've had to figure out is, well, what does that mean for us? Because when we leaned in and was, was doing some work with a large system and institutional racism and mindsets came to the forefront of the work, we were like, well, this is a management issue. This is not innovation work. This should have been sorted out by the organisation. But actually what we have come to realise is that when you're in the work, doing this work, everything's up. You've got to be open to everything. And what it's meant for us is that we've had to think about how we access the right expertise and skill. Because usually what would happen is when, a, when these things are surfaced or emerge, 
people say it's too hard, we're going to walk away, and it never gets addressed. Um, and we're saying, actually, the culture and the conditions for readiness, for innovation, responsiveness to our whānau, what that means is when we're in that work, we need to figure out how we address some of the things that the system itself hasn't been able to in a safe way for the people in the system, for our whānau, for ourselves. What that's meant is we've started to think about the practice in terms of working alongside people in the system. And what we know is working practically when we're working with uh, organisations and systems is that firstly we need to be modelling the types of behaviour that we're asking people to demonstrate themselves. And sometimes inside of the system that's hard because there's no manaki for them. We have to have empathy for people who are in the system as much as we do for people that we're seeking to serve inside of our community, our whānau. And often that is hard for them. So you can't be rocking up and saying, you need to manaki whānau in this way. You need to be supporting the rangatiratanga in this way when they don't feel like they have the conditions themselves inside the system or the service where they feel that they are being nurtured and cared for. So that's a big challenge for us. The um, other thing we've been thinking about is what we're calling agile partnering. And it's kind of like what I was talking about when you're in the work, everything's in scope. Well, when you're in a partnership, you leverage everything for what that partner's telling you they need. And often, it's not what you're bringing to the table. You might have some resource, they might not want that resource. They might want something else. And when you're truly in an innovation partnership, you leverage every relationship, every resource, everything you've got to meet their needs in terms of what they're telling you they need, not what you can bring. So you're open to whatever needs to be done and you're open to whatever needs to be accessed for them. Sometimes you're gonna to have to hit on some quite painful pressure points because those are the conditions that are preventing systems and people and teams and the culture and the organization from being innovative or responsive ready. And so part of it is you going into the process knowing sometimes you're gonna to have to have some quite courageous conversations and you're gonna to have to be quite brave in terms of the corridor you're having with your, either your partner organisation or with the system. And so the first kind of principles that sit with that for us are how are we sharing power and control with our whānau and, and our communities, but also with the organisations that we are working with. I can speak in terms of Auckland Council, we've got some traditional behaviours that don't reflect that. And so we are learning how to do that well ourselves, but we're trying to do it better. And also sharing risk. Because we can't be out there asking people to do things differently and not alleviating or mitigating any of the risk that means for our NGOs, for our community groups, for our whānau. Because what tends to happen is those people with the most power and control are devolving the risk down the line. So all of the risk is now sitting with those that are, have the, the closest proximity to our whānau. So now our NGOs have all of the risk around engaging with whānau and trying to support them. And we're saying that is not conducive to innovation capability and development and responsiveness. We're going to have to find out a way to redistribute that risk back. What that means in terms of our behaviour is we often take on some of the risk ourselves. And the third one is kind of talking about how do you share the load for this work? Because what emerges and surfaces in this work is a whole heap of stuff you are likely to not have expected. And so how do you find allies resources, reconfigure resources, so that you can meet the need of what the work is telling you. So just the last bit here, and us looking at what's holding the status quo in place, right? Like what's keeping us repeating the same challenges, yeah. um, even when we know that they're not getting us where we want to go. And one of the key things that's come up for us 
is the way that data and outcomes and measures are used. What are we tracking and who decided those were the important things? Whose perspective and values do they reflect? How were whānau involved in, in identifying success criteria? Where they even have a voice in that? And what the gap is when you actually work with whānau and look at what outcomes matter and make the difference to them, like to Angie's example before, it was more about manakitanga, feeling connected, feeling belong, having control, having space, being able to heal. Those were the important outcomes, not did you get X service delivered. And so that we've got this gap between the things we're tracking a lot of the time and the things that are making the difference for people. Um, and this, I know this isn't news for people, but we've tried to start unpacking it along with others I know who are working in this space. And we know that there are providers who really do go deeply with Fano and identify those outcomes, but often they're not what they're required to then report back into the internal sort of procurement and commissioning. So we're just playing with trying to surface this idea of what's this gap between our well-being aspirations at a high level, these big indicators of well-being that, that sound pretty good, but actually what we're manifesting on the front line in our services for libraries, for example, we might be tracking things around books or programs, but are we tracking how effective are they as healing spaces or connecting spaces? And what would it mean if we started to shape the way we were developing our well-being responses against these different kinds of outcomes? Because maybe our obsession with data and collection and reporting is, it, is actually not just not serving us, but at times it's getting in the way of these well-being aspirations that we're developing as a country as well as for Fano. And so one of the things we're doing is experimenting, and I say there's others in this space, and we're really excited to connect with people about their learning with the local indicators for change and how they might look different to how we might have been tracking traditionally at a service level and what does that mean. And so we've also been um, just playing with teams. We're just figuring out how to start some of these conversations. This is a very, it's a prototype of a, a tool just to help teams think about, oh, well, what are we reporting up? What are we delivering in our data collection and how connected is that to the things that we care about? Who's been involved in the development of success criteria? What lenses were placed on those? So whose value system decided what success looked like? Where did we draw on the evidence? Was it just Western science? Was there a matauranga lens or were whānau involved? And just trying to surface because what's happened is that the data collection stuff's often disconnected from the mahi as if it wasn't actually part of how we're creating well-being for people. So that's become a significant area for us that we're um, working in. Penny's done some pretty amazing thinking and created a pretty awesome framework for us to learn, which we're calling Nihil Tanifa. But one thing that's sticking out for me, data sovereignty. So whānau are the, um, those stop becoming the consumers of this data and become the producers, the owners and the users of the data for themselves and what do they think is important to them and how do they use that data. But the other thing is, when we talk about measures, tikanga, they are the measures. If you are creating the conditions for people to come in, if you are creating the conditions for whanaungatanga where people can connect to each other, create genuine, authentic relationships, then the outcome is whanaungatanga too. So if, well, you can see when people say, I know I've got positive relationships in my community now. And that's what I think is an interesting concept for us to think about, the tikanga in terms of the telling they are the mechanism for the outcome. You're listening to Here Kōrero, a community research podcast.